Nudge. That is the name of this podcast. Hopefully most of you know that. Of course, nudge is named after the concept of nudging or nudge theory. This behavioral science concept is the idea that you can nudge individuals to make certain choices through subtle cues without limiting their freedom of choice. The books Nudge and Inside the Nudge Unit by Thaler and Sunstein and David Halpern for the second book, they state that one of the most easiest ways to nudge behavior is by making a certain option easier to choose. The Nudge Unit states this very clearly in its EAST framework, which suggests that making it easy is the first thing practitioners should try when trying to change behaviour. This is shown quite brilliantly in Thaler and Sunstein's studies in Google's cafeterias. Now, they wanted to encourage healthy eating in Google's cafeterias without limiting personal freedom or changing economic incentives. In other words, they wanted to nudge people. But they didn't use scarcity, they didn't use loss aversion, they didn't use the endowment effect, curiosity bias, anchoring, or any number of other nudges. They used the most effective nudge out there, making it easy. In the cafeteria, they placed healthy options like fruits, vegetables, and healthy snacks at eye level, and they placed unhealthy options out of reach. They introduced smaller plates and bowls, encouraging Googlers to take smaller portions. And they placed unhealthy sodas in opaque glass fridges and predominantly displayed water behind easy-to-reach transparent glass. Thaler and Sunstein state that these interventions dropped calorie intake from candy by 9%, reduced portion sizes by 32%, and increased water intake over soda by 47%. In other words, they succeeded in changing behaviour by making the preferred behaviour much easier to do. These results, which have been shared widely in books, presentations and podcasts, including on this show, have influenced thousands of organisations who have attempted to apply these results themselves. Netflix apply these principles to beat terrestrial TV. Opower have used it to reduce energy consumption. New York City Council have used it to reduce court no-shows. And Uber have used it to take over from traditional taxis. But these changes come with consequences. Despite behavioural science practitioners, including me, praising these interventions and encouraging others to try them, these interventions don't always lead to the best solution. And all too often, they can have some serious negative consequences. In today's episode of Nudge, we'll talk about the issues with ease. How the easiest option isn't always the best, and how nudges with the best intentions can often backfire. You'll hear from London's most popular black cab driver, Tom Hutley, as he explains why Uber wins on the psychological front, but fails in almost every other aspect. And I'll share how I've misled you in a previous episode of Nudge. All of that coming up. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let me make something clear. Making things easy is an incredibly powerful way to change behavior. 
tweaking defaults and choice architecture to reduce effort is, is really effective. I've shared before on the show how switching the default from opt-in to opt-out dramatically increases the number of organ donors, pension savers, and even gym goers. But the studies highlighting the benefits of this approach don't just stop there. Take one study cited in the book Behavioral Science in the Wild in which parents of students in Washington were asked to enroll in a text message alert program that would send them weekly updates about their child's school progress. The thinking was, the more the parents were up to date with the child's schoolwork, the more they could support their child and help their child. So these texts would help them keep up to date. The study tested different methods of enrolling parents in the text message alert program. The first group of parents were given the option to enroll through the district's online portal. And unsurprisingly, when you're just given the option to log in online and enroll to something, very few people do it, and fewer than 1% of parents enrolled. The second group had it a little easier. They were sent a text message saying they could enroll by simply replying with the word start. And when parents received this text message, 11% of them chose to enroll. The third group had it even easier. They were automatically enrolled in the program, but could opt out by responding saying stop. In this group, 95% of parents remained enrolled. So first group 1%, second 11%, this final group 95% stay enrolled. Changing the default from opt-in to opt-out, it worked. More parents signed up to the text. But that's not all. Simplifying the enrolment process also improved the children's academic achievements. In fact, the average grade point, the GPA, of the children whose parents were automatically enrolled in the text message program increased by 0.06 points. In other words, one in four students did not fail a class that they otherwise would have failed because of these texts. Making it easier stopped kids from failing. And similar interventions have kept kids in school. A different 2015 study from the same book changed the letter sent to parents after their kids had skipped school. Now, the standard truancy letter, the one that was being sent out repeatedly, was over 350 words long. It was written at a 10th grade reading level, so you know, not difficult to read, but certainly not the easiest thing either, and included some legal language that would emphasise the potential consequences of, of children missing school. Following the Make It Easy maxim, the team created a simplified version of this letter. It was less than 150 words, and it was written at a 5th grade reading level. They tested the two letters side by side and the results were astonishing. That simplified version was 40% more effective at reducing absenteeism than the standard notice. And it still included all the required legal information at the bottom in fine print. Just changing this letter, making it easier to read, stopped kids skipping school. And making it easy isn't just helping kids, it can help us adults make better climate-friendly decisions. One study from Nancy Harhurt's book, Using Behavioural Science in Marketing, attempted to convince German households to purchase renewable energy at a slightly higher price. Now, that's not an easy behaviour to change. Most people don't want change, especially if it involves paying more. The team decided not to use scarcity, loss aversion or other evidence-backed nudges. They went with the easiest option, changing the default from opt-in to opt-out. In the opt-in condition, only 7% of participants chose the higher-priced renewable energy option. 
However, in the opt-out condition, 70% of participants chose to stay on the renewable energy plan, sticking with the choice even though it costs more. Now you can debate the ethics behind this, but the results are fairly telling. Changing the default and making it easier works. Now, take this study from the book Transport for Humans. It also shows how you can switch people to a more environmentally friendly behaviour if you make options easier. Ocado, a UK grocery delivery service, wanted to reduce the environmental impact of their deliveries. See, for Ocado, hundreds of vans are driving around the country every single day, dropping off groceries. Now, rather than driving unnecessary miles, crisscrossing across a city to meet the delivery times that are pre-specified by customers... Ocado wanted to nudge the customers towards picking delivery times that matched when the delivery van would be in their area. So rather than having your delivery bang on at 6pm when you get home from work, perhaps you could wait till 8pm when the van would be already in your area, it would be nearby as it's delivering to other households on your street. Again, to nudge this behaviour, Ocado went with the simplest possible option. Ocado added a little green van icon next to the delivery times when the van would be in the customer's area. When the customers hovered over this icon when they were picking their slot, it would say, this is a green delivery time because the van will already be in your area, cut your emissions, stuff like that. So nothing else, no price discounts, no other incentives, just an icon. And this simple addition worked. It dramatically increased the amount of customers who tweaked their delivery time to match when the van was already in their area. And Ocado did so simply by making that choice easier. This tiny change dramatically reduced carbon emissions and fuel costs, of course, for Ocado vans. Making it easy is great. It keeps kids in school, it keeps emissions low, and it can keep New Yorkers out of jail. Zoe Chance, a previous guest on Nudge, she talks about this in her book, Influence is Your Superpower, and she shares this great research from New York City. In the large field study, researchers sent, again, text message reminders to people accused of low-level offences, reminding them to appear in court for their court date. Now, simply just nudging people, telling them to appear in court, sending them a text message, increased attendance from 30% to 38%. For those who did show up, two-thirds of the cases were dismissed, which means 780 fewer people ended up in jail just because of this one intervention. But Robert Cialdini's book, Presuasion, arguably has an even more memorable study on making it easy. He shares an analysis which is looking at the names of 100 attorneys at 10 US law firms. And what he found when analysing these attorneys' names at these 10 law firms was that the harder an attorney's name was to pronounce, the lower he or she stayed in the firm's hierarchy. This effect held independent of the foreignness of the names. A person with a difficult-to-pronounce name, whether it's a domestic name or foreign name, would likely be in an inferior position to a person with an easy-to-pronounce name. This is crazy, right? Something as chaotic and complex as promotions was shown to be influenced by how easy it was to pronounce someone's name. A similar effect occurs when you observe harder-to-pronounce drugs or food additives. They become less favourable towards those products when they are harder to pronounce. But perhaps the most damaging example of this effect was seen in the stock market. 
one analysis of 89 randomly selected companies that began trading shares on New York Stock Exchange between 1990 and 2004 found that companies with easier to pronounce names outperformed those with difficult to pronounce names. So easy to pronounce names perform better on the stock market. So, you know, it looked at these sort of three letter stock ticker codes. So, um, for example, one company might have K-A-R as their code. That's very easy to pronounce. You can pronounce it as car. And then there are some quite difficult to pronounce codes such as R-D-O. You would pronounce that as Rideau, I guess. Well, you wouldn't be able to pronounce it. And it showed that those codes that were impossible to pronounce or hard to pronounce actually get less investment. This dwindles over time as the code becomes more well-known, but immediately when these codes came into existence, they got less investment simply because they were harder to pronounce. So, there is a lot of evidence on making it easy, and backed by this evidence on the impact of ease, companies, organisations and governments across the world have strived to make things easier. They have built products and based their strategies around offering easy options. The problem is, ease isn't always good for us. There are plenty of examples I could give to show you from fast food to high interest rates that show that the easy choice isn't always the best choice. Now, there's one example I will give, which is from Dave Trott's book, Crossover Creativity, and he shares the story of Iftihar Hussein. This is a story about how making it easy can have quite disastrous consequences. So Hussein and his wife were driving across America to Indiana. So he entered the details into their GPS. He followed the instructions until they came to a bridge. Now there were warning signs on the bridge and road cones ahead of him, but since the GPS indicated that you should go straight ahead, Hussein just drove round the cones and drove straight ahead. He double-checked the GPS, it definitely indicated that he should proceed straight ahead, so he switched off his common sense and went with the easy option. In the dark, he drove straight ahead and off the bridge, which ended in midair, and his car fell 40 feet, exploding in a ball of flame. Hussein survived, unfortunately his wife did not. In 2009, in Yorkshire, Robert Jones loaded up his BMW, he fed the details of his destination into his GPS and he followed the instructions. The GPS took him via a strange route. The roads got very narrow. The road became a lane and then the lane became a footpath and then the footpath disappeared. The GPS was still indicating to go straight ahead until his front wheels were over a cliff. The police arrived due to reports of a car hanging mid-air 100 feet above the ground. Jones was arrested, found guilty of driving a car without due care and attention. He was fined £900. There's one more example from Dave's book. In 2013 in Belgium, Sabine Moreau loaded up her car. She was driving just 60 kilometres to Brussels and she entered the details into her GPS. She didn't bother with road signs, she just followed the GPS's instructions. She didn't need to do anything but drive. The GPS would tell her the best route, keeping things nice and easy. Now, it took a very long time for her to cover the 60 kilometres. She had to refuel the car twice. She even had to sleep in the car overnight. But eventually, she arrived in Brussels. Except she didn't arrive in Brussels. The route the GPS had taken had, had been to Zagreb in Croatia, 1,450 kilometres away. 
Now look, these examples, they're unique, and you probably would have heard them before, these people who take the easy option despite all the evidence suggesting otherwise. But they show our natural reliance to take the easy choice. And they reveal, albeit in extreme fashion, how taking the easy choice can often be detrimental. After the break, I'll cover how a billion-dollar company are trying to make their option easier, changing consumers' behaviour, even if it's not ideal for the customer. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work. But it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Okay, back to the show. I want to introduce Tom Hutley, a previous guest on Nudge, who is one of the world's most well-known taxi drivers. With six and a half million views on YouTube, Tom's videos about life as a cabbie have been seen around the world. He is a London black cab driver who, as you can imagine, loves the taxi trade. And to kick off, he explained to me why taxis are so necessary in London. Some people think, you know, well, why is there a need for taxis in London? Because, you know, we've got a are enviably one of the best transport networks in the world with the buses and the tubes and that. And there are these kind of use cases where, you know, a taxi might be more efficient. Uh, A taxi might be able to get you to an area where the transport network isn't so good. Um, Or for some people, uh, it's kind of effectively time travel. They're able to get to somewhere much quicker than any other form of transport. Uh, If you're lost, if you need to get to a job interview, the taxi can be your saviour. The taxi driver is going to provide... Uh, a lot of nuanced insight to London because they've had years of just being able to cultivate all this different knowledge, basically, that you're not going to get from other transport systems. Um, Even, you know, the fact that people jump in my cab and as soon as we're off, they're just working away. Like they're they're on the phone, you know, just give me an address and they're just straight on the phone. They've instantly delegated that responsibility to me. They don't have to think about it. So you need a professional navigator um, to get the true benefit of the service, basically. But here's the thing. Tom faces a problem, and that problem is Uber. Since 2012, Uber have been chipping away at the taxi trade, attracting thousands to their service by making getting a taxi easier. It is easier to hail a ride through an app rather than flagging a taxi down on the street. Uber riders can see their driver's name, their photo, their license plate before the ride arrives. Uber riders can easily track their driver's progress in real time on the app. Uber riders can easily pay through the app as well. And Uber riders can easily rate their driver and provide feedback. Uber have started to take over from the taxi trade across the world because they've made getting a taxi much, much easier. So I asked Tom what he thought. So I'll put a slight defence in for Uber because you've got to remember that in most parts of the world, the taxi drivers are pretty much there to rip you off. It's only within the UK and some of Europe and whatnot that 
taxi drive services are the, the the go-to option but most of the world it's like well hold on a minute uber's actually a lot more regulated in some ways it's safer there's more of an accountability um and you know some areas of the world we don't even have like decent transport networks so it you can sort of see or understand why you know some people in america who are used to kind of getting ubers because there's no other alternative why they would might want to do that in london um, the case for it in London is that, firstly, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit here, is the, the driver safety that's built into a London taxi driver. So most taxi drivers, it's not a case of like, oh, I'm going to become a London taxi driver, and then they just do it for a year and then they pass on. It's like most of the, like, you know, have been in it for a very long haul, like a lot of the guys I speak with quite regularly, you know, have been out for decades. Um, so you have that um, consistency, that um, that trust, uh, the trust factor that's built into it because of how long it takes to get their badge. You know, they're not willing to hand their badge over to a friend and be like, hey, go drive my cab or whatever because it all comes back to them at the end of the day. The metered rate in a London taxi is set by Transport for London. So people say to me, oh, well, London taxis are so expensive or whatever. And they get in their head that this meter is this magical device that's going to roll up to like hundreds and hundreds of pounds for a short journey. But that's actually set by Transport for London. And it's calculated over time and distance. And in fact, the way a cab works, I'm more profitable if I can do short jobs more frequently. So if I go around the houses, then yes, the meter will technically go higher because of the distance covered. But it takes me a lot more time to complete that job. Um, and also taxi fares have a minimum starting fare. So if I can uh, effectively multiply, because they start at £3.80. So if I could just jump from one job to the next, £3.80, £3.80, plus maybe a tip because I've done the job well, I'm going to learn a lot more money rather than just trying to go around the houses, so to speak. So it's kind of a myth that that ever happens. Now, look, I accept that Tom might be a bit biased, but he does share some compelling reasons why black cabs are genuinely a better option for a lot of journeys around London. The other problem, of course, of Uber is that you have this thing called surge pricing. So it doesn't matter with a London taxi, whether it's raining, whether it's really busy on the street and you can't find a taxi, the price you pay in that taxi is going to be the same as any one of the other 18,000 taxi drivers on the street. Um, Uber, however, depending on the area, it can be localized, depending on how many drivers are working that day, depending on the events that are on, uh, those prices can massively fluctuate. So people who might have had like a cheap ride in the past, and they might have gone, oh, it only cost me X amount to get from here to there, then find out they're paying quite a lot more. And in some cases, more than what a black cab would be. Uh, to go to a certain place and then all of a sudden it's not a cheap service because you've got to kind of aggregate and average all these different prices so on the face of it maybe you might have some uber journeys that are cheaper um, than a black cab but then you know you've got to look at you know multiple journeys in the same way that someone who gets in a cab and one day that journey then maybe they take the same journey every single day and that journey might be 12 pound one day might be 14 pound another day might be 11 pound another day they kind of average it up and it's around about the 12, 13 pound mark, you know, might go up, might go up down. That's kind of the easier way of looking at it. Um, yeah, I'd say with the Uber, it's just, just think about the pricing there, really. They're, they'll be cheaper on like long runs, you know, out of town, out of London. Um, you know, if you're going out to the airport, you know, we've never really been able to compete on airport prices because of, you know, the fact that the, the meter is more favorable on those longer journeys. But it's kind of a false economy is all I would say with like the, the Uber side of things. You know, when you really got to look at a driver's got to take a, you know, the Uber take their cut out of it, which is 25%. Then the driver's got to, you know, obviously pay tax on it. They've got to pay for their car. They've got to pay for the hire and ward insurance. It's, 
it's just astounding how they can sort of like turn a profit really like any of these drives and I, and I do feel for them because you know their recruitment drives their campaigns to you know get drivers on board are, are massive and uber do rely upon having a very large workforce to ensure that the it is a good reliable service same way with the amazon model you know you need um you know lots of people using the service so they can operate on their very slim margins and uber is very similar uh in that way it's not just a price thing though Ubers are often a lot slower as well. There's a couple of reasons why, you know, a London taxi would be faster. So one of the things, London taxis are allowed to, in bus lanes, uh, you know, exclusively, pretty much uh, most majority of bus, probably about 95% of bus lanes across London, um, you know, taxis can do that. There's certain areas as well, like if you're going across Oxford Street, for example, you know, the very epicentre of Oxford Street where Regent Street intersects with Oxford Street, only taxi drivers and buses uh, and cycles are allowed over that central part. You know, every other bit of traffic has to be forced round. Um, there's also the, the the knowledge element of of driving. So if an, if you get in an Uber car and you say, like, I want to go to this theatre and the Uber driver doesn't have the knowledge of that theatre or understand where there might be various entrances or various points to drop someone, then they just have to sort of willingly follow the sat-nav and hope it just drops in a good location. Whereas I could easily say, look, for me to get to where a sat-nav wants to take you might add another five minutes to the journey. Do you want me just to drop you on the opposite side of the street and then you can just walk across? And, you know, that might save five minutes because I've already been there like a million times before. I know what the way the streets are laid out or there might be a central reservation there. And similarly, that, that happens with disabled passengers. They might need to get directly to the door. So they need to know the most imperative route to get in. And yet, despite black cabs for many journeys being both cheaper and faster in London, many customers are flocking to Uber. London is Uber's biggest market, with over 3.5 million people catching a ride with Uber drivers throughout the city. The volume of private hire licences has doubled from 50k to 100k since Uber have launched. In the meantime, the number of black cabs on the street has actually dropped. Profits for Uber in London doubled in 2022, growing by 96%, although much of that is due to the post-lockdown return. So it really appears to me that Uber are succeeding in London. However, Tom is not so certain. He's not so sure that Uber are seeing real success in the city. Well, I'd argue they haven't really had success. Um, if you look at you know a lot of the articles that are sort of published about it, London's arguably one of their most... Um, it's not least profitable, but I'm just trying to think of the word here. But London is there, you know, one of the more expensive markets. I think they know that it's a really important market to try and crack because uh, obviously it's a major world city. And obviously, if you can effectively put the black cabs out of business, then there's potentially a lot of work there. Um, I went, and also as well, it's really naive of me to believe that if Uber went away, um, you know, like there's been court cases where, you know, Uber have been, you know, had their license put on temporary hold and possibly get rid of them or whatever. If they went away, us black cab drivers would not be able to deal with the, the service, the, the increased demand there. Not a, sh- a doubt because I feel like it's almost opened up Pandora's box in a way or, you know, opened the floodgates in the fact that it's created a new demand for private transportation in fact in some ways it's probably even helped the black cab drivers out because these are people that would have normally been on the tube or buses and they've gone you know uber's made you know the jump to private transportation that little bit more accessible they would never have normally got into a taxi but they've gone oh my bus costs or bus one pound fifty or my tube costs you know two pound or whatever the, the amount is oh the uber's only like a few quid more maybe i'll do that and they've kind of got used to this idea of taking uber's 
And now they've had a bad service with them. Now they can go, well, actually, you know what? Maybe I will take a black cab next time. And yet, to me, Uber in London is just another example of how they are making things easier and how so many of us flock to the easy option, even when a better alternative exists. We make what you could regard as an irrational choice just because one option is easier. Making things easier definitely changes decisions, but it doesn't always improve our decision-making. Right at the start of this episode, I shared how changing the default can boost organ donors by making organ donors opt out rather than opt in. You might have heard this before, but when governments switch from an opt in to opt out process for organ donations, the amount of organ donors grows from 15% all the way up to 99%. Countries like Germany with an opt in system only have 12% of their population signing up to be a donor, yet France, with their opt out system, have 99.91% of eligible people signed up as donors. Now, there are some differences between the Germans and the French, but not enough differences to justify that choice. It's clear that changing the default is having an effect here. One simple change to the default makes signing up much, much easier. And this finding has been lauded as a success of nudge theory. I have happily shared these studies before on the show, and governments have taken notice. Wales signed up to an opt-out system in 2015, and the rest of the UK followed in 2020. But... Here's the thing. Just like with Uber in London, this increased ease might not be having the beneficial result that all of us want. Research conducted in Wales showed that despite the dramatic increase in Welsh donor registration, the new system has actually not resulted in an increase in the supply of donated organs. Nina Mazar, in her book Behavioural Science in the Wild, shares that the amount of donors has increased, but the amount of actual donations happening has stayed relatively flat. So why is this? Well, actual donation of organs requires consent of the next of kin after the donor's death, even if the donor is signed up. Because folks are now automatically enrolled, they're probably not chatting to their next of kin about it. They're not chatting about if they want to donate, so they're not talking about the fact that they've become an organ donor, because they already are, by default. In fact, the next of kin will be as well. It's no longer uh, a statement or a topic of conversation, it's just something that happens. So all too often, the next of kin will refuse the organ donation after the person dies, because they have not talked about it. They don't know the wishes of the deceased. In fact, there's an argument that this opt-out approach could actually reduce the amount of donations. Previously, becoming a donor was an active choice. Sure, only 15% of people did so, but those 15% felt really strongly about it, strong enough to sign up, and therefore much more likely to inform their family and their next of kin about their wishes. With this make-it-easy opt-out approach, governments might be stopping these conversations from happening, and, and perhaps even lowering the volume of total donations. Look, Making it easy through choice architecture and defaults can work brilliantly and should be tried and tested. But as we've seen, from organ donors, GPS drivers to black cabs in London, often the easiest choice isn't always best. 
Okay, folks, that is all for today. I really hope you've enjoyed today's show. I had great fun, as usual, putting it together. I want to say a massive thank you to Tom for coming on. He was a brilliant guest. Now, I really advise you to go and learn more about Tom, more about taxi drivers, and more about the knowledge, which is the thing all taxi drivers have to learn to become a taxi driver. And Tom talks about all of this great stuff in his YouTube videos. I've left a link to his YouTube in the show notes, or you can just search Tom the Taxi Driver on YouTube. He is one of my favorite YouTubers. His videos are really interesting interesting even if you don't live in london or if you don't care about black cabs i think they're still worth watching so go and check him out now as i mentioned on the show sometimes the best option isn't always the easiest option and for my newsletter which is very popular i haven't actually made it very easy to sign up you have to go to nudgepodcast.com you have to click newsletter you have to enter your email that's not very easy there are a lot of steps you have to take but just because it's not easy doesn't mean you won't enjoy it So if you sign up, you will get my weekly behavioral science newsletter. It covers my favorite behavioral science tips, behind the scenes info about the podcast and upcoming information about new guests. It is great. It is also completely free. So please do take those extra steps to sign up today. Go to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter to sign up. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn. I am Phil Agnew on there and I'm P underscore Agnew. That's A-G-N-E-W on Twitter send me a message let me know what you think of the show i'd love to hear from any uber drivers out there if you have listened please do come back to me and tell me why i'm wrong anyway thank you so much for listening folks i really hope you enjoyed today's episode i will be back next week for another episode of nudge